You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John DeYard. Welcome to the Life Spa podcast. And today we have a really special guest, one of the most brilliant herbalists in the country. Uh, I used to speak with him at a conference years ago, and whenever he would speak, I was blown away by his wisdom. And that was two decades ago or something like that. And he was brilliant then, and now he's got 53 years of herbal experience under his belt. His name is David Winston. He's an herbalist and ethnobotanist, uh, trained in Chinese medicine, Western eclectic medicine, which is the original sort of natural medicine of this continent, and Southeastern herbal traditions. He is the uh, former director of the, he is the founder rather, and director of the Herbal Therapies Research Library and the Dean of the David Winston Center for Herbal Studies, a two-year training program in clinical herbal medicine. And I wanna say that when you have somebody as brilliant as David is, and you're gonna hear how brilliant he is in just a minute, for him to then actually create a school where he can actually train folks is so important because the knowledge you know, gets lost in someone like David. And to have him be able to actually have a training program that you guys can go and learn and take a two-year program, become certified in his in herbal medicine, is just amazing and david thank you for for doing that that is hugely important he's also the founding professional member of the american herbalist guild which is like the gold standard for certification of herbalists around the world and he's the he's the founding member uh, uh, of that which is you know really says a lot about how long he's been in the industry um, I could go on and on and on about his bio it's super long he's published articles and studies um, He's also uh, recently in 2018 year, 2018, um, uh, he was a scholar, he was um, uh, a Mitchell visiting scholar at the Bastyr University, which is naturopathic college. And in 2019, they gave him an honorary doctorate degree. The only time a college gives anybody an honorary doctorate degree is because when they hear them speak, they go, wow. And I think you're going to hear uh, David speak here in a minute, and we're all going to really go wild. We're going to talk about anxiety and depression. David, Winston, thank you so much for being here. It's really an honor to have you here. Like I said, you've been one of my idols, my mentors. Uh, not really mentor. I haven't really studied under you, but but uh, I, I've always been so um, just blown away by your wisdom and everything that you do uh, for you know for herbal medicine. And uh, so thank you and welcome. Well, thank you, John. It is a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, as I was saying, uh, you know, it's it's been way too long. I've always been also quite impressed with your knowledge and wisdom and your ability to share it with people. Um, recently, I was watching your podcast uh, on melatonin by Paula Witt Enderby. I was I was astounded. I mean, not only was she brilliant, yeah. and anybody who wants to know about melatonin, if you haven't watched this podcast, you have to do it. It's amazing. But the interview was amazing. You know, it's that's a, that's a a unique skill set to be able to really draw the best out of somebody. So thank you, and again, ple absolute pleasure to be with you today. Well, that's going to make it easy for me. All I have to do is sort of push the button, let you speak, and the, and the brilliance I know is going to come out. And you're right. You know, and we're going to talk about anxiety and depression today. And and uh, melatonin, we'll talk about that. And I'd love to have your take on that too, because you know, it's sort of this thing where it thinks, oh, it's a sleep hormone and and I used to think it's a sleep hormone. Why would I ever give anybody a hormone that would, by definition, suppress the natural production of their own, right? So I would never do that until I found out 
by studying Ayurvedic circadian rhythms, you kind of fall into all the research on circadian medicine and melatonin being a big, you know, uh, piece of that. And um, and then I found that melatonin is a powerful anti-anxiety agent. In fact, one study they gave people before surgery an anti-anxiety medication, and then they gave them melatonin, another group melatonin, and the melatonin worked just as good for their anxiety as did uh, the anti-anxiety medication. So, you know, it's a great way to start off this conversation talking about melatonin and maybe dive into, you know, a, a lifestyle in sync with, you know, the natural circadian rhythms. Are our biological clocks in sync with nature's circadian rhythms? Is that part of the anxiety depression, you know, issue? Well, absolutely. And, you know, when we talk about anxiety and depression, let me, let me backtrack for just one second. And one of the challenges is that and, and I am a big fan of Western Orthodox medicine. There are some things they do just exceptionally well. Treating depression, though, doesn't happen to be one of them. And so when we look at depression and anxiety, we have to stop thinking about the disease as much and start thinking about the person. So Hippocrates is supposed to have said, it's apocryphal perhaps, but it's supposed to have said more than 2000 years ago, it's more important to know the person that has the disease than the disease the person has. He, whether he said it or someone else said it, whoever said it, they were correct. And so when we treat <clears throat> depression or anxiety as a single entity, as a disease entity, you're depressed. Oh, you need an SSRI, you need an SNRI, whatever your efficacy is always going to be very, very limited. As an herbalist, very early in my training, and I honestly cannot remember who told me this, but very early in my training, and as you mentioned, you know, I've been studying herbal medicine for 53 years. I've been in clinical practice for 45. And I've always seemed to have known this, but again, I didn't figure this out on my own. Somebody said this. They said, if somebody's depressed, look at their gut. And so when we look at depression, uh, as an herbalist, I differentiate more than 14 different underlying pathophysiological types of depression. And the more you can treat the individual, do they have GI-based depression, hepatic depression, neuroinflammation-induced depression, which then ties into melatonin and the glymphatic system? Do they have blood sugar dysregulation-induced depression, thyroid-induced depression, cardiac depression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And this is true for anxiety as well. And the more you can treat the person who is depressed, the more effective your treatments are going to be. I mean, when you look at the orthodox treatments of depression, at best, when you look at the clinical studies, at best, your pharmaceutical antidepressants work about 40% of the time. And that's if you realize that they're in that number, they're excluding lots of studies that were negative studies that simply never got published and got buried someplace. Now, I can't say that I have clinical trials backing up what I'm going to say. There are clinical trials showing that the underlying types of depression I'm talking about are very real. That is not uh, debatable. But what I can say is clinically, when I work with people who have, and again, we're mostly talking about mild to moderate depression. If somebody has, you know, suicidal tendencies or, you know, really severe depression with self-harm or whatever, they need to be dealt with by a professional. Uh, somebody who can deal with that type of, you know, potentially life-threatening situation. But for mild to moderate depression, when you treat the person who is depressed, 
and it meaning looking at the whole person, looking at their diet, looking at their lifestyle, looking at sleep, which is incredibly important. And, you know, Warren Zevon said many, many years ago, he had a song where he said he'd sleep when he's dead. Well, he died pretty young. Maybe that's why, because, you know, I know somebody used to say, uh, you know, uh, sleep is, 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 you know, I can take it or leave it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You want to be healthy? You need not only the adequate amount of sleep, but quality of sleep. So as a clinician, one of the first things I do when I'm doing an intake with a patient, when I say to them, well, how many hours a night do you sleep? And they'll say, you know, five, seven, nine, 12, whatever they're saying. Then the question, follow-up question has to be, when you wake in the morning, do you feel refreshed? Because no matter how long you are quote unquote sleeping, if you wake up in the morning and you do not feel refreshed, then there is a problem. There is some type of underlying sleep issue and whether you have depression, anxiety, uh, early stage dementia, whether you have uh, a, a whole range of uh, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue immune deficiency syndrome, if you can't get that person to sleep, healthy sleep, refreshing sleep, you're not gonna get better. So there are so many underlying factors, nutritional deficiencies, hormonal issues, um, digestion, uh, you know, gut dysbiosis. There's so many things you have to look at. And the more you can look at that person that you're treating and develop a protocol, including specific herbs that work for specific types of depression. So you hear this all the time. Oh, St. John's wort is the depression herb. Oh, no, it is not. St. John's wort only works well for three of the more than 14 types of depression. And so therefore thinking of herbs as sound bites, you know, little capsules, that's great for a store who's selling a product, but as a, a clinician or for somebody who really wants to uh, understand the benefit of these herbal medicines, you have to learn their personality. You have to learn the energetics. You have to learn, you know, when to use them, what to combine them with, because in addition, as you know, from Ayurveda, true in TCM, Campo, uh, Tibetan medicine, Siddha, Yunani Tib medicine, physiomedicalism, et cetera. Herbs have traditionally, in all the great traditions of herbal medicine, are used in complex formulas. Why? Because we're dealing with complex people with complex problems. And so this idea of the magic bullet, this herb for this disease, almost invariably fails. And that, you know, talking about sleep being such an important, you know, indicator of overall health and the science on that is just overwhelming. And melatonin from that perspective is, is, um, is, um, is sort of uh, pigeonholed into being the sleep drug. Whereas we know that melatonin does so much more than put you to sleep, it puts you to sleep so it can then do its job, which is to help detox, rebuild and repair, amp up glutathione, changes your microbiome, it does all these things that are so critically important. And as we age, we don't produce as much melatonin, which is an indicator of perhaps why we age faster and have more anxiety and worry and depression as we age, because we don't have that melatonin. But so much of that, you know, so my question for you is, you know, how do you, what is, what's your strategy for kind of rebooting uh, levels of melatonin? And also, um, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we uh, mitigate the, the age-related decline of melatonin and the natural ability to detox and repair and rejuvenate the brain while we're sleeping? Well, 
obviously that's a multi-part question. So let me see if I can, and if I forget one part, please remind me. But so with melatonin itself, of course, it is, um, you know, as it is secreted, as we age, that decreases. So knowing that, um, there certainly is, in my mind, a place for supplementing melatonins, for, certainly for people as they age. And that's something that I do. And you're absolutely correct. You know, melatonin is profoundly anti-inflammatory. One of the factors that we know drives depression and anxiety is neuroinflammation as well as gut inflammation. So that certainly plays a role there. We also know that certain um, herbs, which fall under the category of what are known as nootropics. Now with nootropics, there's kind of three categories of quote unquote nootropics. Uh, there are the nootropic drugs, which are potentially problematic. There's some nootropic supplements that are relatively safe. That is, you know, we'd have less experience with them. And then there are the nootropic herbs, which for instance, in Ayurveda, they've recognized for millennia, the Rasayan, the Medhya Rasayana herbs. And so these herbs enhance cerebral circulation. They decrease cerebral uh, neuroinflammation. Uh, we use them all the time for helping to treat people who are anxious, depressed, uh, people recovering from head trauma injuries, and not just physical trauma, but I've treated patients who are recovering from things like bacterial meningitis, who, you know, they're sent home from the hospital and said, well, we've done everything we can do, and hopefully over the next six months, you'll regain your ability to speak, you'll, you know, your memory will hopefully come back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera and you give them these herbs and the results, I'm not saying it works every single time, nothing works every single time, but much more often than not, you see people start to regain all of their cognitive faculties in a relatively short period of time. Interestingly enough, and, and you know, one of the areas where I specialize in is the use of herbs that are known as adaptogens. And for those listeners who may not know what an adaptogen is, adaptogens, the simple explanation is they're herbs that help us to adapt to stress. Um, they create a nonspecific state of resistance regarding, doesn't matter whether the stress is psychological, physiological, environmental, whatever the reason. But the real definition of adaptogen is much more complex than that. Nevertheless, um, Dr. Panosian, who at this point is probably the world's top researcher in adaptogens, actually in a paper that came out in the last three years, actually stated that he actually believes that melatonin is an adaptogen, which is interesting because if it is, it'll be the first non-herbal substance to actually be an adaptogen. So I can't say for sure it is, but you know, if you understand what adaptogens do, and what they do is they help re-regulate the HPA axis and the SAS, so that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the sympath uh, sympathoadrenal system, your fight or flight mechanism. And they work by upregulating molecular chaperones such as heat shock proteins, uh, FOXO, which is a forkhead protein, and neuropeptide Y, which decreases neuroinflammation. Again, tied into depression, tied into the glymphatic system, because when you have a lot of neuroinflammation, the glymphatic system doesn't work very effectively. And that's how your brain cleans itself at night when you're in deep sleep in that delta state. And so things like melatonin, again, I, you know, I, when melatonin was first introduced, 
uh, maybe the 1980s, I suspect, I was really leery of it because it was basically a semi-synthetic hormone. And, you know, my thought was, why are they selling a semi-synthetic hormone in health food stores? This is, you know, hormonal substance. And of course, our knowledge of melatonin at that time was very, very, you know, minimal. And the doses were very small. And of course, the doses have increased dramatically. And what we are finding is, as we said, you know, melatonin may even be an adaptogen, but again, it's a neuro anti-inflammatory. And because of that, and because of its ability to uh, uh, enhance lymphatic function, it not only can enhance sleep, and it's not just about sleep, it's about the day-light cycle, you know, helping to reset those circadian rhythms. And I've had lots of people say, well, they took melatonin and it didn't help their sleep. And that's often true because there are other problems going on. It's not, that's not the problem. But if there are underlying uh, issues for people who are um, working airlines and and fly and are constantly changing time zones, uh, for people who, uh, and I've noticed this as I've gotten older, and of course, I haven't been doing a lot of flying the last two years, but, you know, occasionally, um, I'm much more sensitive when I fly to California now. It takes me longer to get used to the time change. I've also noted that the whole daylight savings time thing seems to have a more significant effect. And of course, that's a whole issue because the research really shows that this kind of back and forth thing really isn't very healthy. And the effects are not just you know for a week when you think, oh, for, you know, then you acclimate. The reality is every cell in your body is set to a circadian rhythm and they don't change. (laughs) And so helping to re-regulate those circadian rhythms, not only can melatonin do it, but a lot of our adaptogenic herbs also help us to do it, as does obviously sunlight and dark. And so we don't want to forget about the fact that how many people are in bed at night, looking at a phone, looking at a computer, they have a bright light on, all blue light, which is shutting down melatonin production. Um, so there is just so much to that question, you know. So we're again, we're looking at the whole person, and the answer is not one herb or one supplement. It's let's look at this person, let's look at their life. What things can we change in their life to help bring them back to balance, to that harmonious place, which basically allows the body, in most cases, to actually heal itself. You know, it's, it's what's interesting about melatonin being a potential uh, adaptogen is some of the newest research is suggesting that we all have, not only do we have light pollution at night, we have a light deficiency during the day. They actually call it a red and infrared light deficiency. And you may have tuned into some of this latest research on, on, uh, on infrared light, how it actually penetrates very deeply into our tissues. It penetrates our brain, our skull. And activates the mitochondria deep in our tissues to make energy or ATP. And uh, there's byproducts to uh, waste products that are free radicals, reactive oxygen species from the waste products from making energy. And the infrared light also stimulates an enzyme called the cytochrome C oxidase enzyme to make an antioxidant, which happens to be melatonin. So the body makes melatonin inside of every cell because of sunlight, but that's, that melatonin never seems to leave the cell. And the research shows that 90% of the melatonin that we produce in our body is produced in the cell because of daylight. 
And only 10% of the melatonin that we actually that we actually make is from the pineal gland to help us go to sleep that regulates our circadian clock. So when you say how little we know about melatonin 20, 30 years ago, we still are just beginning to understand that this thing is so quite amazing. And it probably is, probably is an adaptogen and then some because it's the it's the one molecule that's three billion years old. It's in every cell of every living creature that connects the, the, the light dark cycles, like knowing night is coming and winter's coming was probably really important on this planet if you're a little cell of some kind. And you had to figure that out early on. And that's the molecule that regulates that information and ability to adjust and adapt to that. So that's sort of a, an interesting thing, which kind of, and, and the studies show my point with that is that the studies show that, that if you don't get that light that we need, and most people, 90% of Americans spend 90% of their time, most Americans spend 90% of their time indoors, mm -hmm. and therefore not getting the light that's been shown to increase not only the melatonin production at night for them to go to sleep, but we need energy to go to sleep, which is ATP to go to sleep at night as well, to sedate the nervous system. And that's one of the reasons why people aren't sleeping so well, not because of just the blue light, which is a huge thing, the pollution, but also it's the lack that we don't go outside anymore. And I just read an article that just came out not too long ago when they measure the they measure the uh, the, the the activity of three of the major um, uh, hunter gatherer tribes: the Bushmen, uh, the Tasami in Bolivia, and the the Hadza tribe in Tanzania. And they put a little light meters on them, and they found out when do they get the sunlight, when do they get dark, what do they do? They measured them on all levels, and they found that they got the sun in the morning, and they got very little sun in the midday because they were smart enough to go into the shade. So they would avoid the UV radiation, but most of their sunlight, which is when the UV light is there or the infrared light is there, I'm sorry, and it's unopposed. There's no UV light in the morning. So we're getting this massive blast of morning sunlight, which is red and infrared light. That is what penetrates the cells, activates the mitochondria, gives them the, the, the regulation of their circadian rhythms during the day, which they need to have that deep sleep at night, which I thought was just really interesting that that's when they got their sun. For us Americans, whatever, we sleep in, then we get ready to go to the beach, we lie in the sun in the middle of the day, right? And get baked and fried with all the UV light. And we're just, you know, it just makes you know no no sense. But when you really look at the ancients, they 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 didn't maybe know why, but it absolutely worked for them. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, that's absolutely true. And you know, it, it just amazes me how much traditional knowledge. Ayurveda, TCM, et cetera, et cetera, how much was understood? And again, maybe not like, for instance, give an example. Uh, one area that's really interesting with herbal medicine is this idea of synergy. And synergy, I was talking before about how in all the great traditions of herbal medicine, herbs are not used as simples. They're not used as single things. They're used as complex formulas. And this idea of synergy where one plus one no longer equals two, one plus one equals three or four or five. In fact, there's one study I came across where herb A and herb B increase the bioavailability of herb A by 2000%. So this idea of, of synergy, of increasing things by mixing things together in a intelligent and appropriate way. So for instance, the ancient Chinese realized there's this wonderful herb called uh, Yanhusua or Corydalis, uh, one of the most effective herbs for pain relief in Chinese medicine, especially pain caused by blood stagnation. So that could be anything from bruising or trauma or angina where there's you know, impaired blood circulation, but they almost always mix it with a second herb 
uh, called Bijer, which is Angelica decurica. And so you use like two or three parts Yan Hulsua to one part uh, Bijer. Now, the ancient Chinese had no idea that there was a chemical in, in Corydalis called DLTHP, nor did they know that Bijer increased the bioavailability of DLTHP. But they recognized, probably through experience, and it's what in Chinese medicine is called duiao, herb pairs, the two herbs, herbs that work well together. And there's over 130 common herb pairs that through millennia people have recognized. And in, in Ayurveda, there's often herb triplets, trifla, trichitu, all right, of herbs that are recognized, you know, that really work and enhance each other's activity. And so these are just a couple of examples of traditional knowledge. And by the way, if you had said to me 15 years ago, do you believe in herbal synergy? I would have said, absolutely. It's baked into all of our traditional systems of herbal medicine. But if you said to me, can you prove it? Is there any research on it? I would have said, no, there wasn't. And since that time, um, herbal synergy research has become actually a really popular area of research. And now there are, I don't know, 80, 100 studies showing again that this actually works. And so these ancient traditions, I'm not saying they're right all the time. Um, there are areas where in Chinese medicine, they've looked at things and found out the traditional knowledge was not actually correct. But the times when they're incorrect are relatively infrequent. And the times when they are right about having the Chinese clock that looks at the organ systems. And so like you wake up in the middle of the night between one and three in the morning, it's this organ. Uh, you know, Or I, for, for me as an herbalist, um, there is a specific pattern for what I call uh, menopausal insomnia, where it's uh, invariably women who are postmenopausal, they have no trouble falling asleep. They wake up every morning uh, between one and three in the morning and then can't get back to sleep. We have specific herbs to deal with that. You mentioned the lack of sunlight, especially morning light um, with insomnia. As an herbalist, we recognize there are different patterns in insomnia. There's deficiency insomnia, there's excess insomnia, and the herbs you use to treat one are totally different than the herbs you use to treat the other. And so to me, what is so exciting about this, you know, is what is old is new and, you know, finding this research, um, I'm always excited about new research that, you know, opens our minds and our eyes to new ideas. And then even more so when I find something that opens our eyes to old ideas and says, yeah, this isn't folklore, this is truth, this is indigenous science, that however people discovered it has existed in many cases for thousands of years. I'd like to know what your radar is on, you know, herbs that are harvested at different seasons for a specific reasons. With the case of depression, for example, we know that sunlight is very actively helps the body produce serotonin, which supports anxiety and depression. Um, and um, but in the wintertime, it's dark and we don't produce as much and lots of folks fall into their depression during that time. And it's kind of interesting. And I wrote an article about how Ayurveda had a plan for that. And the plan was to harvest certain herbs that are that are known to be brain derived neurotropic factors, which support, you know, brain cell, you know, uh, proliferation. There are also natural serotonin boosters. And three of those are harvested, in fact, um, in the fall for winter eating. Uh, one of them is uh, ashwagandha, mm -hmm. another one is um, turmeric, which is a fall harvested root. And uh, you mentioned the, the herb that 
you could put herb A and herb B to make 2000% absorption. It was turmeric and black pepper, I think you were talking about. Yes. And, and, um, and that's kind of, I want to tell you a story about that in a minute. That'll be my next question. But turmeric was the other one. And bacopa, which is also a fall harvested root. All those are natural brain derived neurotrophic factors. And the other one that's a classic brain derived neurotrophic factor is fish oil or the omega 3 fatty acids. And the cold water fish in the winter, they leave Alaska because I guess it's just too cold and they migrate down into the waters where we'd actually fish them. So traditional people would naturally get more of those omega-3 fatty acids during that time to boost that. So nature had a plan to mitigate for the fact we didn't have as much sun in the, in the winter, in the summer, or in the winter that we have in the summer and support uh, depression and to support against depression. So I wonder, on your radar, I know that you must have bumped into this, and I'd love to hear your take on you know, the idea of the impact of the seasons and the herbs that are harvested in different seasons for different effects. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's interesting. There, in, 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 you know, I'm not trained in Ayurveda, although I'm very familiar with most of the Ayurvedic herbs. I use them all the time, but uh, as a system, I'm, I'm more familiar with TCM as well as eclectic medicine and things like that. And TCM certainly had this idea of seasonality. And so there was the idea, for instance, especially from a dietary perspective, although an herbal perspective as well, when it's hot, you're going to eat things that are cooling. When it is cold, you're going to eat things that are warming. And there was also the concept of uh, certain things, uh, you know, and this is true across the board, I think in every tradition, various herbs were um, harvested because people recognized they had different properties and there were certain times where they were more active than others. So I'll give you a, a brief example, dandelion leaves. Dandelion leaves are obviously edible. Most people are aware that you can eat dandelion greens. They're very commonly used in the Southern United States as what's known as a salad, S-A-L-L-E-T, uh, you know, little pork fat and <laughs> not the healthy way to do it. But if you do it with, you know, you cook them with a little bit of, garlic and olive oil and a little bit of vinegar, it's delicious. And you want to get the really young spring gathered greens and they're nutrient dense and they build blood and they help to deal with that sort of, you know, uh, uh, hyper viscosity of blood that often occurs for over winter time where you're, you know, less active and you're eating more and more stored foods and things like that. But then if you, for instance, dandelion leaves also act as an incredible aquaretic. An aquaretic is a non-irritating potassium sparing diuretic. So if you wanna give somebody a diuretic and you don't wanna to have to worry about depleting potassium, you use an aquaretic. It also doesn't irritate the urinary tract or the bladder. And so if you want dandelion greens to be an aquaretic, you can gather them in the springtime, but they're even more effective if you gather them in the summer when it becomes really bitter. And so you can also at that point use dandelion greens as a bitter digestive stimulant, which it doesn't work so well if you gather it in the springtime when it is less bitter. I mean, it's a little bitter and Americans are so bitter adverse that most Americans tasting will go, oh my God, that's really crazy bitter. But, you know, it's funny. Um, I grew up obviously in a, in, a, in this country. And, and so I grew up in a household that bitter was not, you know, the only bitter thing I think my parents probably ever consumed was coffee. And by the time you add your non-dairy whitener and your, your sugar and everything, it's, you know, you've lost all that bitterness. 
But the reality is if you start eating bitters on a regular basis, you actually, at least I have, and many of my patients have as well over the years, you kind of develop a taste for it and you start to kind of crave them and recognize that especially after eating really heavy foods or really fatty foods, bitters enhance not only digestion, they enhance absorption, they enhance elimination, they have broad reaching effects. And that I will say is one of the really cool things about herbal medicine, and this is ties back into melatonin, is that they don't do just one thing. I mean, yeah, there are a few herbs like senna, which pretty much does one thing. I mean, there's a few other things it does, but senna is primarily a stimulant laxative. But most herbs, you know, you, people say, you know, again, St. John's works the depression herb. Yes, it works for certain types of depression, but it is also a neuroanti-inflammatory. And traditionally, you go back into the great herbals, Parkinson's, Gerard, what do they talk about St. John's work for? For nerve pain. So whether it's facial nerve pain, sciatica, brachial radiculopathy, you know, if we're talking about, you know, where there, there are nerves that are inflamed, you know, that's where you use St. John's work, orally as yeah. well as potentially topically. St. John's was another great example of an herb, you know, when do you harvest it? St. John's Day, June 23rd, because that's when it is in flower. And because the active constituents of St. John's wort, which are mostly dianthrones, if you take a St. John's wort bud, it's bright yellow, crush it between your fingers and look at your fingers and it's purple. That's the dianthrones. And so a good St. John's wort product is made primarily, if you really wanna to go to the best buds only, unopened flower buds and then the open flower buds. The leaves have very little activity. The stems have zero activity. And most commercial St. John's wort is made from the top two feet of the plant. Yeah. You want a good product, you make it from like the top this much, it's just the flowers and the buds. And so, but you have to harvest it at the right time. So if you harvest St. John's wort in the autumn, you're, there's not much there. And you'll get a, a tincture out of it or an extract that's like pale pink. For a good St. John's wort tincture should be blood red. I mean, mm. just this dark, burgundy red color. And that tells you that along with its fragrant odor that it is active. You know, don't worry about standardization for, you know, uh, hypericin, that, that's useless. You know, you, you can tell by the color, you can tell by the smell. And so, yeah, the whole idea of seasonality, while maybe not as developed as it is in Ayurveda, there is definitely this idea of seasonal eating. There is certainly the knowledge that certain things are better harvested in the summer. Other things are better harvested in the autumn um, and, and, and especially roots. Almost all of your roots are gonna be harvested in the autumn, all right? And that's because the, the plant has died back. It's got all this life energy stored up in the root for over the winter time. And that's when you want to get it because that's when the energy is going to be strongest. And speaking of energy, one other thing I just want to share with people is, you know, if you want to be, I always say this to my students, I say, how many of you want to be good herbalists? They all raise their hand. And I say, wrong answer. If you're going to become an herbalist or if you're going to become actually anything, if you're going to become a, a carpenter, if you're going to become a teacher, you're going to become a physician, no matter what you do, don't just be content to be good, be great. And by being great, I don't mean measuring yourself against somebody else who's, you know, you put up on a pedestal. 
each of us has our own unique ability to be great in our own way. Whatever we are doing, we bring our own unique skills and talents and view to that. So if you're going to be an herbalist, if you're going to be a, a chiropractor, a naturopathic physician, a medical doctor, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, an acupuncture, whatever, do it to the absolute best of your ability. If you want to be great as an herbalist, not only do you have to stop thinking so much about diseases and start thinking about more about the people, but you have to look into energetics. And that is the basis of all traditional systems of herbal medicine, understanding that each herb has an energetic quality. It could be heating, it could be drying, it could be moistening, it could be uh, stimulating, et cetera. And people have an energetic. So we're getting back to something like depression, we talked about the underlying different patterns of depression. And you still want to look at, do the herbs fit the person? So if a person has, uh, uh, let's say, anxiety, and they have red eyes, red ears, red head, fly off the handle anger, all right? That's, from a TCM perspective, a, a pattern of liver fire rising. And so the herbs you're going to use there are going to be herbs that are cooling and help the energy to descend because the energy is not supposed to be all up in your head and you see all this heat pattern. And so we're going to be using some herbs that are cooling like bacopa, all right, which is a cooling herb. We're going to be using herbs like um, um, a zizophus seed, Chinese uh, uh, um, uh, Zhao run. We're going to be using herbs that cool down that energy and help reduce the anxiety. Western herbs, motherwort, blue vervain, which do that very effectively. And so the more we can look at the person, their unique patterns, the energetics, and match the energetics of the herb to the energetics of the person, it increases your ability to have, you know, really good clinical success exponentially. Are there other patterns like that that you could kind of give us an example of that would actually, you know, link to depression? Well, with depression and or anxiety, are there other patterns like that? Um, so we have, for instance, a pattern that I call old age depression. And old age depression really ties into usually uh, reduced uh, uh, cerebral circulation which tends to occur in old age. Now, there are other things that can affect this. Um, and certainly we don't wanna ignore the fact that depression has both physiological uh, uh, underlying pinnings, uh, underpinnings, it has psychological uh, factors. I would even go as far as saying, you know, uh, um, spiritual factors, sociological factors, environmental factors. So it is a multifaceted condition. It's, there's not, anytime just one single factor. But in old age depression, um, and again, you know, there's increasing for many uh, elders, increasing isolation, you may have decreased uh, cognitive function, uh, increased use of alcohol. When I first started practicing back in 1976, when I would see older patients and I would ask them what medications they're taking, occasionally somebody be on a diuretic, they'd be on Lasix or hydrochlorothiazide, or maybe they'd be on uh, digoxin or something like that. But usually it was very limited. Today, when I in, uh, do an intake on an older patient and I say to them, how many, you know, what medications are you taking? And they say to me, oh, I'm not on any pharmaceutical medications. It's like my jaw drops and hits the floor because it is so unusual. 
typically today I'm seeing older patients who are on six, seven, eight, nine different pharmaceutical medications. And in fact, my current record is 22 pharmaceutical medications in one person. They're literally a walking pharmacy. Um, and you have to be very careful dealing with that situation because anytime you're using more than seven pharmaceutical drugs, you have 100% chance of drug-drug interactions. Let's not even get into herb-drug interactions, which by the way, are relatively rare, but real. So in a situation like that, how many medications, you look at the adverse effects and one of the major adverse effects is depression. So we, we have to look at many factors, you know, medication, isolation, diet, you know, here we are in the richest country in the world and we have elders who have to decide every month whether they're gonna pay their electric bill, pay for their pharmaceutical medications, uh, pay their rent or for food. Plus as we age, we secrete less gastric HCL. So nutritional deficiencies, even if you're getting it are a problem. And then we have all these elders who are taking H2 blockers or proton pump inhibitors for quote unquote hyperchlorhydria, excess acid, when the reality is they have achlorhydria, a lack of stomach acid. Um, and which of course we know that these medications have really severe uh, sequelae overt B12 deficiencies, magnesium deficiencies, and the list simply goes on. So we're looking at the whole person. But one of the issues that occurs with many elders is decreased cerebral circulation. So here again, we're going back to those nootropic herbs that enhance cerebral circulation because they become increasingly important. And not only do they help with depression, and anxiety, they also can help with early stage dementia. And there is at least some evidence suggest they may either delay or possibly help prevent, certainly slow the progression of dementia in our older population. And so, you know, the, here we have herbs, everything from red ginseng to bacopa to uh, shank push pea uh, to, you know, or just a uh, holy basil, um, rosemary, a whole range of herbs, uh, the Chinese herb yuanzhou, Chinese polygala, that again, enhance cerebral circulation. Uh, and so are used specifically for depression that is associated with either, either old age or uh, a lack of cerebral circulation or neuroinflammation. Yeah, and we were talking before we went on air about the glymphatic system and how the, you know, the brain drains about three pounds of plaque and trash out of our head every year while we sleep. It's newly discovered in the last 15 years, but you know, traditional system of medicine, Chinese Ayurveda, they knew about the brain lymphatic system, they developed therapies to clean it out. And so I wonder, you know, obviously there's, when you increase the, the, uh, the, the cerebral circulation, you're obviously increasing cerebral spinal fluid. So you're obviously not only getting the good stuff in, but you're getting the bad stuff out. So you're actually helping the body move the trash out better um are there any herbs that you that you can think of that are that are really specifically good for that glymphatic system to help get the brain lymph to, to move particularly well yeah um and again i don't mean to sound like a broken record but again especially those nootropic or the medhurocyan herbs um, are especially useful for that and especially the ones that improve the uh, quality of sleep because that uh, uh process occurs in delta state. And so if you are one of these people who is not going, you know, a lot of people, I don't know the percentage, but it's a high percentage of people 
who are dealing with things like sleep apnea or sleep apopnea or you know, other things, the restless leg uh, syndrome, periodic limb movement syndrome, et cetera, that interfere with the quality of sleep. And so again, getting people to sleep and to sleep deeply is absolutely vital. So for instance, if somebody has something like restless leg syndrome or periodic limb movement uh, uh, disorder, then we're looking at herbs like skullcap and blue vervain, both of which are nervines. Nervines are not sedatives, they're nerve tonics. They enhance normal nerve function, but they are calming, but they also stop excessive limb movement and twitching and things like that. Ashwagandha does the same thing. Ashwagandha is also anxiolytic, by the way, so are skullcap and um, blue vervain. Um, and so there are some of the nootropic herbs that tend to be more stimulating. Those are ones we wouldn't necessarily use at night. But for these herbs, the ones that are also calming, as, and so they enhance the quality of sleep, they also, again, usually have either antidepressant or anxiolytic or uh, antispasmodic activity. Those are the ones that we really want to focus in on. So some of the ones that, again, we've mentioned ashwagandha, we have mentioned things like um, um, the Chinese herb, uh, Swanzao Run, Zizifis seed, which you know TCM practitioners know Western herbalists would be unfamiliar with. We have another herb called Gotung, Gambir spines that's used that way. Western herbs, again, things like skullcap, things like blue vervain and skullcap and blue vervain are especially useful for people when they get nervous, they start getting twitchy, spasmodic, tremors, tics, or fly off the handle anger, all right? Those kind of patterns, those two herbs happen to be really, really useful. The eclectics had this interesting system that they called specific indications. And it's like a little word picture that describes different areas where an herb has specificity. So for instance, passion flower, which happens to be really useful here. Passion flower is indicated for people when they lay down at night, they can't shut their head off. And all they do is think. They're thinking about what they did all day, what, the, how, what they should have done different, what they're gonna do tomorrow, what they're gonna do next week, what they did last week, what they did in previous lifetimes and in future life. I mean, they just can't shut their head off. And it doesn't mean it's the only herb I would give them, but passion flower is considered to be specific for that type of constant mental chatter. All mm -hmm. right, so yeah, they have these lovely little word pictures that helped kind of act as uh, sort of mnemonics to help you remember, oh, this herb, is really useful for this pattern, all right? And it's not so much diseases, it's patterns that you see within diseases that helps you to pick out when you wanna use it. So black cohosh, which everybody thinks is the menopause herb, and it is not. Uh, women who use black cohosh as a simple for perimenopausal symptomology are for the most part gonna be pretty disappointed. They're gonna go, yeah, maybe it helped a little bit. I, it's hard to tell. So black cohosh is quite useful and it can be used in perimenopausal symptomology, but as a simple, it's just not very effective. But for depression, it was used by, by, by what Boricky, the famous homeopath called doom and gloom depression. Yesterday, everything was fine. And today it's like a black cloud dropped out of the sky, landed on your head and everything seems hopeless. And just, you know, you're just, you know, everything is gloomy and dark. And what he's talking about is hormonal depression. So we use black cohosh for P 
PMS depression, we use it for menopausal depression, and we use it uh, uh, for what I call grumpy old man syndrome, which is andropausal depression. Mm -hmm. And so again, we have specific herbs that are used for specific types of depression based on energetics, based on symptom pictures, based on underlying factors that allows us to really be very specific in what we are doing based on the specific person who happens to be depressed and or anxious. You mentioned early on the connection between the gut, right? We know it as the second brain, and I think it was Gerson who did original research where he found that the, that's 95% of the serotonin in the body is produced in the gut. So it would make sense logically that if we can amp up the production of some of these neurotransmitters in the gut, we could have an impact on depression. So I wonder what your radar is on that. Obviously, Ayurveda would say, you know, fix the host and create an environment to support that. But I wonder if there's any herbs that could kind of cross over and do both healing the environment as well as supporting neuro neurotransmitter production within the gut and therefore supporting depression. Well, one of the great things is, and this, this, this actually even goes into another area, which is the intestinal microbiome. So in a sense, we have two gut brains. We have the enteric brain in the gut, which what we 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 just we, we rediscovered maybe 35 40 years ago you know before that you know didn't exist but you know of course tcm knew it everybody knew it and so we have the gut brain but then we also have the intestinal microbiome uh, a healthy intestinal microbiome secretes um benzodiazepine like compounds that help prevent anxiety uh, as you said, a healthy gut produces more serotonin and other neuropeptides than the brain does. And even though that serotonin doesn't pass the brain blood barrier, the precursor compounds that are produced do. And so it has a huge effect. And so how many times have people had a GI problem and they also feel this sort of concurrent anxiety with it? There is absolutely at this point clear evidence that either, you know, uh, uh, chron and, and one of the things I mentioned earlier was one of the types of depression is GI-based depression. Anybody with chronic GI issues, whether they have IBS, whether they have IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, chronic constipation, um, gut dysbiosis, um, i.e., you know, the leaky gut syndrome, which is a loss of intestinal epithelial barrier function, Anybody with chronic GI problems is much more likely to have depression, anxiety, or both. And so, you know, we have herbs that heal the gut lining, that heal the gut. And more recent research is now showing that a lot of these herbs that do this also change the composition of the gut microbiota which is, this is like the, the absolute groundbreaking. In the last few years, there are more and more studies coming out showing that not only does it change neurotransmitter levels in the brain, it changes hormones in the gut, but it's also changing the you know, microbes that are actually in our gut. So it's affecting both things. So an incredible example for this that I use for neuroinflammation all the time and gut inflammation as well as systemic inflammation and depression is turmeric. You know, yeah. and turmeric is one of those herbs, you know, certain herbs become popular and sometimes it's deserved and sometimes not. Turmeric is one where it is incredibly well-deserved. I mean, it is phenomenal. And, and one thing I just want to point out about turmeric, 
you know, most people, when they think of turmeric, they're actually not thinking of turmeric. They're thinking of curcumin, which is the isolated, there are three curcuminoids found in turmeric. And about 20, 25 years ago, a company, um, because they couldn't patent turmeric, they realized that there were these curcuminoids and they could extract them and you could patent that. So what I just want to say about that is I'm not saying the curcuminoids are not active. They are, lots of research, um, but there's a problem with the curcuminoids. They are poorly absorbed and quickly excreted. So then in order to make them work, you have to either traditionally what was done is you mix them with the actual traditional combination was turmeric and ginger or turmeric and black pepper. Um, or now they use bioperin, which is a alkaloid extract from black pepper, or they mix them with phosphatidylcholine or micelles or any number of things to get them in the body and keep them there. Well, what a lot of people don't understand is we talked about synergy before. There's not only synergy of combining herbs, there's also whole herb synergy. You know, people are familiar with cannabis and the whole entourage effect. It's not just CBD, it's CBD and THC and the other cannabinoids and the terpenes that gives it its real benefits. Same thing's true of turmeric. In whole turmeric, there are compounds that increase the absorption of the curcuminoids. Since they identify the curcuminoids as the active ingredients in turmeric, they've identified 15 to 20 additional active ingredients that aren't in their curcumin products. And in fact, a study done about three years ago showed that a curcumin-free product, no curcuminoids, had just as much anti-inflammatory and anti-tumor activity as did curcumin. Clinically, as an herbalist, I use turmeric as a powder, I use it as a tea, I use it as a tincture, and I get better results but with those forms, those dose forms, than I have ever gotten from any standardized turmeric product I've ever tried, and I've tried lots of them, just, you know, I get a lot of free samples, so I've tried all of them with my patients, with myself, and, I've, and, and I'm saying they don't work. I'm just saying turmeric to me, the herb itself, in various forms, is actually more active. So turmeric is profound, and, and a few years ago, about eight or 10, a couple of researchers, you know, looking into this new research showing that a lot of uh, depression was involved with neuroinflammation. And they, I guess, read that, you know, turmeric was profoundly anti-inflammatory, actually did studies using turmeric for not just mild to moderate depression, but for major depressive disorders. And in two human clinical trials, it actually was pretty darn effective, more so than your SSRIs or your SNRIs. So, <clears throat> turmeric is a phenomenal example of a herb that heals the gut, my, um, um, the gut uh, uh, enteric, that uh, uh, <laughs> heals, it heals the intestinal epithelial barrier. It, um, it is useful for IBS. It is useful for IBD. It also stimulates liver function. So it enhances bile secretion and bile excretion, which acts as your body's natural laxative. So it helps with things like slow transit time and constipation. And it also reduces systemic inflammation, gut inflammation, neuroinflammation. And so that is just an incredible example of an herb that does all of the above. And it also changes the gut microbiota composition to make it a better, it helps to decrease uh, pathological gut microbiota and enhance healthy gut microbiota. Well, thank you for that. That is so good to know. You know, I've obviously done a lot of research on turmeric, definitely seen the studies on turmeric being a, you know, a brain-derived neurotrophic factor, it supports depression. 
uh, I didn't know the mechanism that it was that it helped amp up the neurotransmitter production, which is really, really good to know. I want to tell you a quick story about turmeric. When we were, we, uh, that research where you take turmeric, 16 parts turmeric, one part black pepper, you mix it together and increases absorption by 2,000%, was done in Bangalore at St. John's University, like way back, I think, in 2000. And that launched this whole idea of putting those two together and creating extracts of each other and making it more potent and more potent and so on. So we, we got a batch of turmeric and we got a batch of black pepper and we always test them obviously before we make a product. Mm -hmm. um, and they were fine, the microbiology was great. We put them together, made the product, tested the product after just turmeric and black pepper 16 to one, which is the classic ratio to amp up the absorption. And the microbiome, the microbiotics, the micro, microbes exploded to such a level, they almost went over the level of what we actually legal, legally could sell. And we looked at that and we we're like, and they're all good bacteria. And we're like, this is what happens with herbs. It's about synergy. Part of the synergy is not just the biochemistry, it's the bio, it's the microbiome that's combining. You know, we know that the roots in the plant attract certain microbes. And now there's research showing that those microbes, particularly in ginseng in one study, show that the microbes itself have the same properties of the ginseng and that's supporting the potential and the potency of the plant. So the new emerging research is not just the chemistry of the plant, it's the, the other half of that is what always was there and really probably should be there, which is the microbes that support that plant. And that was kind of neat about the turmeric, whereas it, it really, really, again, supports the idea that you don't want to take one, you know, one constituent of a herb that has 300 constituents and then palm that off as the better version of turmeric, even though you're right, it is, very bioavailable and very bioeffective. And it has a lot of properties that can be maybe even more effective for certain cancers or whatever. But when you're trying to get the full, you know, full spectrum benefit of turmeric, you really want to get, um, you really want to get the whole plant. And then, like you said, combine it in a way that amps up effectiveness. And that's one of the, one of the ways perhaps that it is amping up effectiveness by not just the biochemistry combination, but the microbiology that are supporting each other as well. I wonder well, if you, you want to, yeah, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Well, you know, when we get into the mycorrhizal association between plants and fungi, and of course, you know, for fungi, I don't know if you've ever had Paul Stamets on your show, but brilliant guy, absolutely really? worth listening to, a uh, lovely person as well. But anyway, one of the things we now know is every plant, you know, we used to know that, you know, the, the Fabiaceae's, the clover family had mycorrhizal associations. Well, now we know every plant has a mycorrhizal association. Some of them are very specific and some of them are a little bit more, you know, whoever's around. So one of the great examples here, and, and by the way, one of the things we're now learning is a lot of the chemistry of the plant is not just the chemistry of the plant, it's the chemistry of the plant with the fungi. So a lot of these compounds are actually being produced by the fungi and they're in the plant. All right, so a great example of this is a Chinese herb called Ma or Gastrodia. It's a pretty expensive herb. It's an orchid and in the wild, it's probably close to extinct. And so now it's mostly being cultivated. And I will point out that anything that's grown in China, you better do your due diligence because it's like, uh, there are some serious pollution issues and pesticides and herbicides and you know all sorts of that kind of stuff. So you really need to do your due diligence to make sure what you're getting is what you want. Because I think most of us, uh, we don't mind the healthy added bacteria, but we certainly don't want all sorts of nasty pesticide residues. Yeah. Well, 
it turns out that TMA, which is you, it is the single best thing for things like tinnitus and dizziness. I mean, it is phenomenal. It is also used for anxiety. It's also used for depression. It's a nootropic. It reduces cerebral inflammation. Amazing herb. So one of the things they discovered, it has a unique mycorrhizal association with the amylaria or honey mushroom. And what they then found out is if they take the honey mushroom and dry it, grind it up, make an extra, it has the exact same activity as TMI. So mm. you can now get armillaria pills, which are really inexpensive <laughs> compared to, and, and so much of the activity, I wouldn't say 100%, but a lot of the activity in this gastrodia actually is coming from the fungi that it lives with and needs to survive. And that's just, you know, it's just absolutely cool thing yeah. uh, to find out that that is indeed the case. Yeah, that is so cool. And it, I, I love that concept so much that, you know, we're finally getting back to really understanding what, what nature provides we want to provide to our patients without messing it up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and you got to include the microbiome when you do that, which I think is, uh, you know, such a beautiful thing. I love that story. Thank you so much for that. That is awesome. Going back to depression again, I'm gonna keep keep on topic here. Um, there's a, a an old word in 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 ancient Europe, a German word called melancholy, right, which means black bile, right, which is one of the links to depression. So I'm curious. And I'm sure it's one of your 15, uh, you know, classifications of depression. But I'm curious what how you look at that and how you would treat that. Okay, so. We have to differentiate the ancient term melancholia, which meant, again, melancholia, an excess of the black bile. Um, and there were four humors. And so this was one of the, this, was, I mean, this wasn't one of the good humors. This was an excess of the black bile. And it left feel, people feeling despondent, dark, um, i.e. melancholic. Today, when they use the term melancholia, they're really just talking about a very deep, dark um, treatment resistant depression. It doesn't exactly fit the pattern of the traditional melancholia. Traditionally, melancholia um, is what the eclectics called hepatic depression, liver-based depression. Mm. And the symptoms of this depression is often, first off, the person has a mixed depressive anxiety disorder. They're both depressed and anxious fly off the handle anger, kind of volcanic anger, again, may have liver fire rising symptoms, red head, red eyes, uh, things like that. They eat fats, they become bilious, they get nauseous from eating fats. And so traditionally, there are certain herbs that are indicated. So for instance, we talked earlier about St. John's wort, and I said it's really useful for three kinds of depression. St. John's wort, in my opinion, is most effective for GI-based depression, hepatic depression, i.e. melancholia, and seasonal affective disorder. But for seasonal affective disorder, it actually doesn't work well by itself. You have to combine it with a second herb, which is melissa or lemon balm. Together, mm. they work really well. This is a concept of synergy. Either one by itself doesn't work very well at all for seasonal affective disorder. Mm. And so think of St. John's wort, it's this beautiful yellow bud or flower. And it's for the person who, you know, they are gloomy, despondent. It's like all of their windows, and this goes back to what we're talking about light, 
all of their windows are so dirty that no light is coming in and they need to open up the windows and get some sunlight into their life. Maybe some, you know, nice breeze, some bird singing, some flowers and kind of light themselves up. And that's where we use that. We also use things like wormwood for melancholia or hepatic depression. We use rosemary for hepatic depression. Another herb um, that we uh, use there for that is saffron, all right? With that, again, that beautiful golden color, you know, a pinch of saffron, and you're not, I'm not talking about medicinal, but a pinch of saffron in an entire pot of rice, it turns color. And there's great research coming out of, interestingly enough, and this is bizarre, I think I understand it, but right now, if somebody said to me, where in the world are they doing more good herbal research than any place else? It's Iran. Hmm. And probably because of the embargo, they have to depend on their own traditional medicine, but traditional Persian medicine, which is a big piece of Yunani Tib medicine, um, is flourishing. And when they do research, it's not like China where they're doing research on injectables and it's like an isolated constituent from an herb. In Iran, it's tinctures and teas mostly, and they're doing some amazing research. Well, there's a ton of research on saffron showing that saffron is incredibly useful as an antidepressant. And they're, just, they're not necessarily looking at type of depression, although actually I found one or two studies where they did look at energetics, but they're looking at, you know, um, you know, neuroinflammation and reducing neuroinflammation, reducing depression, and saffron is great for hepatic depression as well, i.e. melancholia. Hmm. Wow, that's good to know. Rich man's depression medicine, because it's not, not cheap. I yeah, it's not it. cheap. Like, you know, I've been looking into carrying a saffron product, you know, and it's just such a pricey product. And um, but um, but I, but yeah, absolutely, it's a, an Ayurveda saffron is an ojas builder, one of the classic ojas builders. And ojas is what they call the the most subtle aspect of digestion. Ayurveda that says it takes 30 days to digest everything and make the most finest the finest form of digestive fluid called ojas, which is for vitality. It's just after you produce the reproductive fluid, then the final product is actually this ojas, which creates radiance and glow and joy and happiness and the sattva, what Ayurveda calls, you know, just that, that ability to feel free to give and love and care for others and so on. And those are the the uh, the sattvic the, the sattvic herbs or the ojas builders. Um, but um, and there are a lot of ojas builders, not them all great for depression. But um, so I wonder, are there any other herbs that 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 people that you can talk about for depression and anxiety that we haven't touched on yet that can sort oh, of goodness. start to I mean I mean I mean obviously there's you know the, the more common pathways that people would experience. Well, let me let me talk about one thing that I I, I just find phenomenal and. Um, you know, as I said, I've been practicing herbal medicine, studying herbal medicine for quite a long time. And yet some of the most wonderful things I've ever learned about plants, I've learned from the plants themselves. Um, so anybody who thinks that the only way to learn about plants is through science, science is a great, a wonderful tool. Don't get me wrong. I love science. I love good research. But being with a plant, really getting to understand the plant, to getting to know it, learning its personality and being open to what it has to tell you. And I'm not just talking about sitting there and any wild idea that comes into your head is, is reality, but learning to develop relationships with things, which I actually think you know, all of the ancient traditions did, um, is not 
you know, we'll call it indigenous science, is not a uh, invalid way of learning. And so this formula that I'm gonna talk about came to me from the plant. And so there is a small tree that grows here in the Eastern United States. It's a, it's a, it's, um, uh, was brought in, it's not a native plant. It is called mimosa um, and, and it's Albizia julibersan. And so this is the common mimosa. Um, in Chinese medicine, mimosa bark and mimosa flower are both used as medicine. The bark is hahuanghua, uh, excuse me, hahuanpi, and the flower is hahuanghua. The flower is very mild. I usually use the flowers for either people who are very, very depleted, deficient, and oversensitive, or for children. The bark is what I primarily use, certainly for adults. And it is the single greatest mood elevator that I have ever come, certainly legal one, that I've ever come across in my life. Hmm. And now you do not want to give it to somebody who has bipolar disorder because it can precipitate a manic episode. Absolutely can. So can rhodiola, by the way. Um, but um, in combination, I use a combination of mimosa bark, hawthorn berries and flowers, and everybody thinks hawthorn is the cardiovascular, and it most definitely is. But in Chinese medicine, the heart stores shen. Shen is consciousness. They always translate it as spirit, but it's it's consciousness. It's the mind, and um, and it also hawthorn is a wonderful nervine or nervine if we're in the UK. And then the third part of this formula, so it's it's mimosa bark, it's hawthorn berries and flowers, and it is organic rose petals, fragrant rose petals. If you get the plastic roses that they sell in stores, that won't work besides God knows what they've been sprayed with. This has to be fragrant organic rose petals. So it could be Rosa Damascena, uh, could be uh, Centrifolia, the cabbage rose, the damask rose, et cetera. Uh, apothecary rose, uh, beach roses. And so you harvest the flowers when they are really vital and just that incredible rose odor, which by itself, by the way, is antidepressant, used often in traditional Persian medicine as an antidepressant, especially for people who are uh, heartbroken, hmm. which is a real thing, by the way. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this combination I've been using for probably 30 years, clinically at least. And I use it for people who have uh, what I call stagnant depression. Now, if you look in the DSM-5 and you look up stagnant depression, you will not find it. Why is that? Because I made up the term. I didn't make up the condition. The condition is real. There's just no term for it. And so everybody's familiar with the, uh, un, uh, probably understands situational depression. Something bad happens. It's not unusual for somebody to be depressed. In fact, a, a hysterical study. I love when I come across studies that you just sit there and you just go like, really? Are you kidding me? You spent all this money and time and doing this study for something I could have like told you? Anyway, in this study, they looked at people where, you know, trauma happened in their life. We're talking about primarily emotional trauma. It could have been a divorce, a loss of a loved one loss of a job, the loss of a companion animal, something for that person that was traumatic. And what they discovered in the study is it was actually normal for people that something bad had happened for them to be depressed. <laughs> really, that's groundbreaking. And of course, um, that is what is known as situational depression. Something bad happens for a period of time, you're depressed. And um, they also concluded in the study that they may actually be over-medicating people for normal life experiences. No duh, uh, really. You know, grief is not something to be, it's a part of life. 
And it actually is a very powerful impetus to growth. Nevertheless, there comes a time when something bad happens for most people after six months or a year or 18 months, and there's not a, an expiration date on grief, but at some point, people start coming back into their life. They start doing things again. They start living again. And it's not like they forget the trauma, but they manage to find a way to, to you know, time, they say time is the great healer, and they find a way to move along. But some people get stuck, and that event becomes the sun. And they now orbit that event and they don't have the strength to escape the uh, gravitational pull of the trauma. That mm. is what I call stagnant depression. Mm. And so this is a situational depression that becomes chronic. And so I use this formula for stagnant depression. I use it for treating PTSD. All right. One of the herbs that we use for helping prevent reinstatement of fear memories is mimosa. Okay. Now, if somebody has PTSD, I highly recommend before you start taking something like that, you make sure you're in therapy with a good therapist because stuff's going to come up and you may need help. You probably will need help to process it and deal with it, but it will help people to move on. I use it for chronic grief, um, broken hearts, and it is <laughs> pretty amazing. And so, um, we have options within herbal medicine, whether it's something like lavender, which we use for GI depression, old age depression, um, you know, cerebral insufficiency induced depression. We have herbs like ashwagandha that I use for hypothyroid induced depression. Ashwagandha in my experience is the single best herb for stimulating thyroid function that I've ever worked with. You know, for people who have, you know, and a lot of times people get blood work and they'll have a TSH and it'll be, you know, high twos, threes, fours, and most labs will say anything up to four or 4.5 is normal TSH. Every single endocrinologist I work with says any TSH above 2.5 is subclinical hypothyroidism. And so ashwagandha combined with bacopa, uh, combined with a little damiana, Damiana, for instance, is specifically indicated for depression where the primary symptom is loss of libido, all right? And so, you know, they can become really specific, but there are all these great herbs out there that can be useful for enhancing cognitive function, decreasing neuroinflammation, improving quality of life and mood, reducing depression, relieving anxiety. We even hardly even talked about anxiety, but we have also wonderful herbs that are amazing anxiolytics. And by the way, an awful lot of them also affect GI health. So, you know, GI induced anxiety is a major causative factor for anxiety. Hmm. I wanna, this is great, so great. And I wanted to kind of start wrapping up and I wanted to share with you a story. When we used to teach at the Medicines for Earth seminar years ago, Rick Scalzo, who's the owner of Gaia Herbs, you know, we used to tell a story where he would have a, you might even have been there, where he would have these composiums early on where people go to this island off the coast of Maine and they would spend a week or three weeks there. And one of his, yeah, and one of his actually one of the leaders of that. Okay, does you know this story then, which is my question for you, what you'll understand in a minute, is people would, he would tell them in the beginning, I want you to find one herb while they're learning a bunch of herbs, but one herb you would find in the woods that you didn't know what it was and you would look at it and you would pet it and touch it and learn about it and feel it and watch it and watch it in the morning, watch it at night and just be there and learn it. And then at the end of the symposium, give a 
a, a discourse about what that herb was and what do you what do you think it actually does you know medicinally on the planet and he said that people would would have this discourse and that was better than the, than any you know herbal materia medica that you could find it was so accurate so which i thought was just so cool and you said you know you got this formula from listening to the herbs they told you so i want you to tell us what they said and how did you get that information if you don't mind sharing that okay so what Rick is describing is I teach a class which is called Talking Leaves, um, the Language of Plants. I didn't know that was you all these years. That's, that's great. Me. That's me. Yeah, yeah, awesome. That's, well, it's perfect still, like, that it comes up now, right? Yeah, I still teach that class. And in almost every indigenous tradition, there are pathways to becoming um, open-minded enough and open enough that you can actually communicate with plants. And so it's not, it's not, you know, it sounds very new agey and kind of woo woo, but it really isn't. As I said before, I would consider this indigenous science. And it, it involves getting to know the plant physically, meaning looking at its growth, how it grows. And when I do this with people, I have them not do it over a week. And those trips to Swan's Island were a blast, but not over a week, but over an entire season, you know, right. so over through its life cycle, you want to see that plant how it grows, what it grows with, where it grows, what eats it, you know, uh, what does it grow with? And you, you just pay attention to the plant and kind of really try to gain all that knowledge. Then I teach people what is called the physical language. The physical language is a whole way of understanding plants based on indigenous chemistry. The color of the plant, the taste of the plant, the smell of the plant, all of these things give indications as to what the plant is capable of doing. Once you have, are doing that process, then you actually sit with the plant and you try to literally, it's what my uncle called, be patient about being patient. And the first time he said that to me, he says, you, you, need to, you, know, you need to let go and just learn to relax with the plant and stop let go of the expectation because we have all these big expectations. The expectation either is I'm not going to be any good at this and I'm obviously going to fail or I want miracles right away. <laughs> it's right, like right. there's very little in between. And it's just being open to being there. Just like when you get to know somebody, it, it doesn't happen immediately. It takes time to develop a relationship and you're going to learn to develop a relationship with this plant. So again, my uncle called it, you learn you need to be passive about being passive. And again, the first time he said that to me, I was like, what? Relax, let go, no expectations. And you're just there with the plant. And it could happen the first time. I've seen it happen the first time. More often it's the fifth time or the 20th time, or depending on how much you can relax, could be the hundredth time. But all of a sudden, one day you're sitting there and all of a sudden you realize the plant has shared something with you and it's something that you know is absolutely true that you didn't know the moment before you were told this. And at that moment, the hair on the back of your head stands up and you hear this little music. It goes, do, 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 the Twilight Zone music. Um, and not really, but all of a sudden there is a part of you that says, whoa, that was real. There's something real here. This isn't my imagination. And at that time, you start to be able to learn from plants. Some people hear things in their mind. 
Some people see images, like watching a little movie, you know, with your eyes closed. Some people get kind of feelings. It's more kinesthetic. Different people, depending on how they perceive the world, experience it in different ways. But the reality is I have learned some of the most amazing things that I have ever learned about plants from the plants themselves. Yes, I've also done, you know, I have one of the largest private herbal research libraries probably in North America. I have like 9,000 volumes from 1550 to current and I read this stuff. So, you know, I learn from the old literature. I learn from new research. I'm, you know, I'm looking at studies literally probably almost every single day. I learn from going to classes. I learn from brilliant people like yourself. Um, but I also learn amazing things from the plants. Hmm. And so whether it is that combination that I mentioned before, whether it is the St. John's wort in the lemon balm, which I did not discover on my own, the plants told me, all hmm. right? Um, yeah, I, I just stay open to it. And it's interesting because you know, I hear people often talking about like intuition and intuition is a very real thing, but where, what you want, at least in my opinion, is intuition with knowledge, not intuition with knowing nothing. So, you know, when somebody comes to see me, as soon as they walk in the door, things are already popping in my head. I don't know anything about them except what I am seeing. And I don't know where this stuff comes from half the time. I just write little notes. And then later on, after I've done my intake and my case history and all the diagnostics, I look back at what I wrote down and more often than not, it's like, yeah, absolutely. But I don't know necessarily where that came from. Um, and that's the kind of intuition I think we want to encourage, you know, where you, you open yourself up to the possibility that there is a part of us, maybe not our conscious mind, that knows things and can detach things and pull things together that we may not be able to do consciously. And plants have a consciousness. And we talk about new research, you know, studies have clearly shown very clearly over the last 10 years, spending time in nature reduces depression and anxiety. And it could be your garden, it could be a park, it can be, you know, something wild. We know that forest bathing, the Japanese forest bathing, especially being in nature, but even more around conifers has powerful effects to affect us physiologically and psychologically, and I'd even go as far as saying spiritually as well. And we also know from research that there is a consciousness in plants. And I believe plants are far older than we are and that we can tap into that if we allow ourselves to and take the time and have the patience to allow that to become part of our life. And then the beauty of that is even if nothing else happens, even if you're like, oh, that ain't gonna, it's always somebody who says, oh, that's not gonna work for me. Well, if you believe that, that's true, obviously. But, but even if nothing else happens, studies have clearly shown spending time in nature right, is right. beneficial for us. You know, it's been coined nature deficit disorder. Right. And you talked about sunlight in the morning. That's right. part of nature deficit disorder. So having a relationship with plants, whether you grow them, and even if you live in an apartment, you can grow herbs in pots on your balcony or in you know in your kitchen, you know, and and actually, and you know, maybe not quite as good as if they're grown, you know, outside. But you can still have that relationship with plants. We know that having plants in your home increases negative ions and actually pulls pollutants out of the air. So we are designed to have a relationship with what my uncle called the great life. 
We are not supposed to be separate from it, separated by four walls and artificial lighting. We need to make time for ourselves to be a part of the natural world because we are a part of the natural world. And the more we separate ourselves from it, I personally believe not only do we have more physical illness, but emotional illness, more depression, more anxiety, and the things that come with it. So I think those are part of that healing journey. Wow. You know, um, <clears throat> everything that you said is the lead into a whole nother discussion with you, really, you know, talking about the, you know, the secret life of plants and mm -hmm. how we can, you know, kind of learn. And I, I think that, you know, this is the spring and our gardens are just getting ready. And I think it's a, a great opportunity after listening to this podcast to think, you know, I'm not only going to grow my garden, but I'm going to actually, you know, spend some time in it and connect and watch those plants grow from the little sprouts to full to their full adult size and taste them and enjoy them along the way and really try to connect. And I, I started a wild garden about three years ago, as opposed to, you know, making it all look so beautiful. And uh, I've been blown away by watching, letting it just happen on its own. What happens, you know, broccoli starts growing, you know, 20 feet away than where I planted it. And, I'm, you know, it's just a magical thing to watch nature do its own thing with, with, you know, with at least a little bit of guidance. And I, so I encourage everybody to, uh, you know, uh, after listening to this podcast, you know, take advantage of the summer coming, mm -hmm. enjoy nature, get outside, um, you know, watch your plants grow, connect with them in every way you possibly can. Um, David, um, anything you have to say in summary, please do. And also give us your website. People can connect with you. Okay. So my website is herbalstudies.net. Um, that will bring you to my school, the David Winston Center for Herbal Studies, the two-year program that John talked about. The, I just will say the next program starts in September of 2022, two-year program. So if anybody's interested, please look at the website. But also on the website, there's a lot of other things. So even if you're not interested in the school, there are things that we have accessible from my library that you can download for free, books from 1800s, eclectic physiomedical literature, we have some articles by me. We have uh, all sorts of links to other great sites. I'm going to definitely, we have to link up to you all because your, your stuff's amazing. And um, so that's, you can get that there. And um, let's see, what else do I want to say? Um, well, first of all, I'm just very thankful for the opportunity to spend the time uh, sharing this with all of your listeners. I, I'm sure that uh, uh, they are a uh, amazing group of people who is very discerning when it comes to this. They're very, I'm sure, very knowledgeable group of people. And so just to understand that what we talked about today is literally the tip of the pine tree. <laughs> it's the tip of the branch. And so, you know, when you get to dealing with things like depression or anxiety, don't stop and think, okay, I'm depressed and that's the problem start thinking about what are the underlying issues that are contributing to this. And it could be emotional trauma from your childhood. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of therapy. I think everybody should go into therapy, assuming you can find a good therapist. Why? Because really good therapy is about discovering yourself. You know, a lot of people don't realize, I'll keep this brief, but, you know, depression can be a learned behavior. If you grew up in a household 
where one of your parents was chronically depressed or chronically anxious, you stand a 50% chance of being chronically depressed or chronically anxious. If you grow up in a household where both of your parents were chronically depressed or chronically anxious, or, or both, or either or, then you stand about a 100% chance of experiencing that. Because as a child, you don't know that that's not a normal way to be. And so you learn that as your way of being in the world. And so anything that can be learned can be unlearned. The problem is it's way harder to unlearn it as an adult than it was to pick it up unconsciously as a child. But that potential exists, especially with good therapy, which is why I'm a big fan of really good therapy. I would also point out that if you are in a relationship, we talked about um, depression being you know, contagious, anxiety as well. If you are in a relationship with somebody who is chronically depressed, chronically anxious, and it's not just your significant other relationship, it could be your family, it could be friends that you're around all the time, it could be even work coworkers you're around all the time. There is something within us called the mirror neuron system. And it's what allows us to feel empathy. So when we see these pictures of this brutal war going on in Ukraine and our hearts go out and we are like, oh my God, that is horrible. And it allows us to feel that deep empathy for these people who are suffering horribly. That motor neuron system mirrors what is happening around us. And if you are surrounded by people who are depressed, they're so deep, often in that depression, that they're really fixed. And you start getting pulled into the orbit of that depression by a mechanism that is in our brains that is there, whether you know it or not. And so understanding that this, there are multiple causes here. And the more you can understand those causes, the more you can address those multiple factors, nutrient deficiencies, you know, I mean, what is it, 60% of Americans are magnesium deficient? You know, if you have an MTHFR gene SNP, how many B vitamins are you not getting adequate amounts of? How many people have, I mean, my record at this point for a vitamin D uh, is about, uh, I had a patient not that long ago who had a vitamin D level of eight. At that point, you can get rickets. I mean, we, you know, there are so many underlying factors. And what at last the thing I will mention is, is just, just remember, first, always deal with the foundational things. What is foundational? Foundational is diet, lifestyle, sleep, community. In my opinion, spirituality or relationship to high power it doesn't necessarily mean religion. These are foundational things. Herbs are not foundational. Supplements are not foundational, okay? They are incredibly useful therapeutic tools, but nobody ever got ill because of a St. John's wort deficiency. Mm -hmm. A melatonin deficiency on their head, probably so, but certainly not a St. John's wort deficiency. So the first thing is whether you are an herbalist, whatever you're, you're um, as a practitioner, whatever you might be, understand that first you address the foundation, all right? And then you use these incredible therapeutic tools to help move that person along with the changes, the foundational changes toward health and wellness. And, you know, sometimes we can just deal with symptomology. There are some things where you're not going to change the underlying pathophysiology because it's either too late or it's genetic or whatever. But there are so many things that we can do to improve and that you can do to improve the quality of your life or the quality of the life of the people that you work with 
keep an open mind. As a clinician, the worst disease that you can get is hardening in the mind, where you believe that everything you know is the truth. I always tell my students, be open to the possibility that, er that everything you know is subject to change. Now that might seem, oh my God, how? but understand that, you know, when you learn something that you thought was true for decades, that's not a moment to sit there and say, oh my God, I was wrong. It's a moment to sit there and go, oh my goodness, I've learned something new. And now I can communicate that to other people that I have a greater understanding of this new information. That is a wonderful thing. So stay open-minded, whether it's communicating with clients or looking at new research or, you know, reading something in a book. You know, people say to me, well, I read that this can do this. Is that true? And I'm like, well, I've never heard it, but could be. It's always possible. And that allows us, I think, really, and, and I think that open-mindedness, whether we're talking about diet, whether we're talking about lifestyle, all sorts of things, I think keeping an open mind is a really healthy way to improve your mood. Yeah, well, I, you know, wise words uh, from David Winston. And David, thanks again for, for spending so much time and being so generous with your time. I really, truly appreciate it. Um, love to have you back. We'll let some time go and we'll, we'll build up a, a, a wealth of desire and we'll, we'll, we'll blow that up next time we talk. So I, I can't wait for that to happen. Um, thanks again so much. Um, we'll talk soon. That's great. Uh, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to seeing you in the future. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.